Hello and welcome to the first of our occasional special episodes of the Woody Allen Pages podcast from me, the creator of the Woody Allen Pages website. I hope you've enjoyed the first season of the Woody Allen Pages podcast. We're going to try and do one or two of these sort of special episodes every season to break up the film talk a little. This week, bonus episode one, we are going to talk about Woody Allen's relationship with music. We'll look at how music plays into his filmmaking, how he has used music in his films, the kind of music he loves, and some of the musicians who have made a major contribution to Allen's work. I'll probably spoil some moments from Woody Allen's films along the way, so you've been warned, spoilers are everywhere. Allen has been a working musician almost as long as he's been a filmmaker. He's played clarinet all his life and would jam with musicians in clubs when he did stand-up in the 60s. He finally joined a band in the early 70s and started to play almost every Monday night at Michael's Pub in New York. As Allen became more famous, Allen's weekly club gig became a hot ticket in New York City. Allen and the band played at Michael's Pub for over 20 years until 1997 when the band moved over to the Carlisle Cafe. By now, the band was called the Eddie Davis and his New Orleans Jazz Band, and the band leader was Eddie Davis. They played that room most Mondays for 23 years and counting. They take breaks for the holidays, and sometimes in the summer, usually when Alan is making a film. But even then, Alan sometimes gets the band to fly to France or England or something to do a few shows. Like his films, Alan's music is more popular in Europe than America. And over the years, Alan and the band have toured Europe, playing prestigious jazz festivals and even the Royal Albert Hall in London. Even now, when he's shooting abroad, he brings his clarinet and practices every day. In his band, he focuses on New Orleans jazz, sometimes called Dixieland. The kind of jazz that was rowdy and great for live performance, with big melodies and simple arrangements. It was the first jazz that a young Woody Allen fell in love with while listening to the radio. You can hear and see Allen's band in Wild Man Blues, the 1997 documentary directed by Barbara Koppel. It followed Allen and the band as they toured Europe. The name of the documentary comes from a Jelly Roll Morton song, one of Allen's favourites and a New Orleans jazz legend. The documentary was produced by Sweetland Films, who were releasing Alan's films at the time. There's also a wonderful soundtrack released. And from that soundtrack, here's the title track, Wild Man Blues. Alan is not the leader, but just one of the players. Alan also doesn't sing. He might sing along with the rest of the band sometimes on some of the big choruses in the New Orleans stuff, but he's certainly not the best musician in the band. Everyone else plays in multiple bands and are highly trained pros. But Alan does know that he's the most famous member of the band and the main drawcard for audiences. I mean, he gets to call the songs and the rest of the band has to be ready to follow. Mostly the band improvises and they have fun following Alan's lead. I feel like how Alan plays in a band directly affects how he makes films. Because in a film, it's the same. Everyone follows Alan's lead 
and they're free to improvise and be great. On a film set, Alan is also just one of the band. While the other auteurs around him take the grand title of a film by so-and-so, as if they do everything on their films, Alan goes for the written and directed by Woody Allen. It's a deliberate move. His role is just to be the writer and the director and is part of the process. Yes, he originates the film and he's in charge, but he's nothing without the band and he's nothing without his crew and cast. Alan also likes to improvise on set. Again, like in his band, they have a template, the song or a script, and he lets the talented people work it out. Alan is notoriously hands-off when working with actors, and he treats them like band members. Who is he to tell the piano player what to play? The piano player is a better piano player than him. Similarly, who is he to tell Penelope Cruz or Kenneth Branagh how to act? He hired them. They're the actors. They know how to act. It reminds me of another artist that I love. Bob Dylan and Woody Allen have a lot of parallels. They both played the same clubs in the 60s, and they both helped to put New York on the cultural map. They both prefer to be prolific, throwing lots of work out there and just seeing what happens. And for those who don't know, Dylan works with great musicians, but sometimes gives them very little information. He would be in the studio and he would teach a band a new song, do a couple of takes and move on. Many of his greatest recordings were done this way. And so it's the same with Alan. Alan doesn't usually give actors full scripts and he doesn't rehearse. You turn up and the band leader, Alan, might give you some feedback, but sometimes he won't. And if you did your job, you move on. There are hundreds of stories of key cast members in Alan's films who say that they never spoke to Alan at all. Alan's reasoning is that they did a great job. What else is there to talk about? A lot is made of how Alan has worked with the same crew members for decades and decades. This too, I think, comes from how his attitude to making films is affected by his attitude of making music. In music, you don't bat an eye when a band stays together. The Beatles did all that they did with just the same four guys. In film, it's much more common to chop and change in some attempt to keep things fresh. It doesn't work for Alan, and Alan has also said his ability to make a film a year is only possible because he's not spending half a year putting together a new crew every time. Given the chance, Alan would have probably liked to have been a full-time musician, but he's typically self-effacing when asked about it, saying that he would probably starve if he had to try. Unfortunately for Woody Allen's musical aspirations, he was actually a very talented writer and director. But that didn't mean that he couldn't use his love of music in his films. In fact, music is a key part of what he does, and his use of music is one of the reasons he's considered a great filmmaker. So let's look at how that music is used. The typical view of Alan's film music is that he just throws in a bit of pre-recorded jazz onto whatever he does. And sure, he's done a fair bit of that, but it took Alan a while to find his method and to figure out how to make it work to help him tell his stories. Because there's a lot of different ways to use music in a film, and there's also lots of different types of jazz. Very roughly, I'm going to talk about four eras of Woody Allen's use of film music, and we'll go through them. One is the first seven films, mostly the 70s, where he was trying to work out what to do. Two, the 80s, where he experimented with all sorts of music in a wildly eclectic period. Three is the 90s and a bit beyond, when he used a lot of jazz in contemporary New York. And then four, what he's done recently, mainly in Europe. Let's look at all four of them. Part of Alan's journey with film music runs from his first film, 1969's Take the Money and Run, until Interiors in 1978. 
This was Alan trying and learning, but hadn't really worked out what he wanted to do with music or use music at all. None of the films in this period had a commercially released soundtrack. When Alan started making films, he did what everyone else did, which was to hire a composer. Especially in comedy, a peppy soundtrack would help bring the wackiness. He started at the top with Marvin Hamlish, who would go on to be one of the most acclaimed composers in film. Hamlish wrote original music for Take the Money and Run in 1969 and Bananas in 1971, those wacky slapstick comedies. They sound wonderful, but they didn't really fit with what Alan wanted to do. So he played around, using parodies of other film scores in the sketches that made up everything you always wanted to know about sex, and using Russian composer Sergei Prokofiev in his Russian comedy Love and Death. The exception in that early run was Sleeper from 1973. Alan went to the New Orleans jazz that he loved so much for a story set in the future. Nothing about that kind of jazz screams the future, but Alan used it anyway. In fact, Alan actually travelled to New Orleans himself and played on the soundtrack backed by the legendary Preservation Hall Jazz Band. It wasn't the pre-recorded jazz that would become Alan's trademark, and in a way he was still using a composed score of new recordings. But Alan was starting to realise that he could be indulgent and bring his tastes into the film no matter what it was about. So from Sleeper, here's the opening credit song, Taint Nobody's Business If I Do. comedies of Alan had a smattering of European filmmaking influence, but that European influence would really show with 1977's Annie Hall, and that includes the music choices in Annie Hall, or lack thereof. Igmar Bergman is Alan's favourite director, and he didn't like using music. So when you think of The Seventh Seal, you don't really think of the great musical numbers that were there. And some of it was due to budget constraints. Those European masters back in the day didn't work on Hollywood budgets, and they didn't have money to license commercial music or commission complex scores. So, aping his heroes, Alan decided to play around with not using music. I think Alan thought it was a way for him to become a more serious filmmaker. It's funny that Annie Hall, his most famous and acclaimed film, opens with no music. And neither does Interiors, the film that followed Annie Hall. But in Annie Hall, you can almost feel the tension between Alan wanting to be a serious filmmaker and being a music fan. He puts music into the character of Annie, making her a singer. And that film ends with a stunning montage over a song that we heard earlier in the film, sung by Annie, which is Seems Like Old Times. For a film where Alan tried to have no music, it's included on the American Film Institute's list of 100 best songs in American cinema. So here's that wonderful song that ends Annie Hall. Having you to 
And it's still a thrill Just to have my arms around you Still the thrill Obviously some of those early films are great and some of them are masterpieces, but musically they just weren't cooked. Alan still didn't have that distinctive opening credit sequence where he chooses a song that acts like a prelude. That changes with 1979, with a film that has a soundtrack that's the finest meal you've ever tasted. It would kick off a new era of film music for Alan. The second era of Alan's film music journey is that fruitful period from 1979's Manhattan to 1992's Husbands and Wives. Those films were wildly experimental and jumped from genre to genre. And so too did the music of these films, jumping from Manhattan's lush Gershwin score to September's small amount of piano played by one of the characters. Not every film was filled with musical colour, but Alan was creating many great musical moments. Manhattan's soundtrack is so celebrated that there are concert performances with just the score. It was an original score, but not original compositions. Not only was it the music of George Gershwin, it was very obviously the music of George Gershwin. It was more than just something that sounded nice, it was making a point about the cosmopolitanism of Manhattan. Alan used a big orchestra, the New York Philharmonic, for the recording. Manhattan was his first film to have a commercially released soundtrack, and it announced Alan as a master of mixing music and film. Gershwin wasn't strictly jazz, but plenty of jazz musicians recorded versions of his music, and Alan would go back to that wonderful era of songwriters who those jazz legends loved. Writers like Cole Porter, Rogers and Hart, and many more have had their music used in Alan films. Right up there with Gershwin and Porter for me is Hoagy Carmichael, who wrote the wonderful song Stardust, which gave Alan the title for Stardust Memories. That film was the first time that Alan used classic jazz recordings prominently and conspicuously. In particular, he used a few recordings from New Orleans jazz. In terms of New Orleans jazz, the stuff that Alan plays in his band, Alan has some clear favourites. Clarinet player George Lewis is one that Alan refers to a lot. And incredibly, he has yet to use any of Lewis's music in his films. He has two other New Orleans favourites that he's talked about as well, Sidney Bechet and Louis Armstrong, and both appear in Stardust Memories. When Alan uses his favourites, he really uses them. They aren't for background, he gives them a key moment. He gives Armstrong one of the best showpieces in his filmography, that ending in Stardust Memories, where Sandy thinks of his happy memory. We've talked about that in our Stardust Memories episode, so I'll highlight another Louis Armstrong moment. At the end of Manhattan, Isaac lists his favourite things into a tape recorder. Two pieces of music are mentioned. He mentions Mozart, but he also mentions Louis Armstrong's Potato Head Blues, recorded in 1927. Here's the thing. Some people actually think Potato Head Blues, which was written by Armstrong, has a melody that was picked up by Hoagy Carmichael and used in his song, Stardust, which, of course, Louis Armstrong later covered and, as you know, ended up back in an Allen film. So anyway, here's Potato Head Blues by Louis Armstrong. Thank you. 
this time, Alan started to keep a significant collection of music in his editing suite to use during the editing process. He'd pull records from the rack, trying different bits of music with what he filmed. The use of pre-recorded music is a fast way to find the score and oftentimes it's what he'll go with. Other times he will find the feeling and ask one of his collaborators to recreate something in that style. Much like how a lot of his films around this time only found form in the editing, so too did the music. The editing was where the musical character of his films were usually determined. This period saw Alan jumping around using far more than just jazz. Alan used classical composers like Felix Mendelssohn on A Midsummer's Night Sex Comedy, or Eric Satie on Another Woman, and Kurt Weill on Shadows and Fog. Many of the films around this time used music that tied to the story, like Purple Rose of Cairo, using music from the films that Cecilia watches or Diane Weiss' character playing piano on September. The cliché that Alan just throws in an old jazz recording under any film had not yet developed. The music at this time was as diverse as the rest of his filmmaking. Through it all was Dick Hyman, Alan's reliable musical collaborator at this point. He wrote incidental music through this period as well as writing those excellent songs in Zelig, and he also turned Nick Apollo Forte's songs into score for Broadway Danny Rose. He would work with Alan until 2004's Melinda and Melinda. Alan did use a lot of jazz recordings in one film from this period, and that's 1986's Radio Days. Alan used 40 songs in his tribute to the Golden Age of Radio, covering the spread of what was played at the time, from jazz orchestras to teen vocal groups to various radio jingles written just for the film by Dick Hyman. That semi-autobiographical film showed that Alan was a huge music fan, and he wasn't just putting it on, and he knew the deep cuts. From Radio Days, here's the fabulous Relax jingle written by Dick Hyman. Get regular with Relax. Start every day the Relax way. Your system will feel so great. You'll want to relax on the top of the Empire State. It's not the commercial. It's the girl. She has no flair for it. She's the best to audition. What, What do you think, Mr. Monroe? I think she's correct to represent my laxative. She's fresh, her voice is natural, and she does it simply. Definitely. That's exactly what I was saying. What do you think, Doris? I don't like her. Get rid of her. Radio Days was his last film to have a commercially released soundtrack for eight years. In the late 80s and early 90s, a lot of the music was good and worked great in their films, but they were not full of song and dance, and given the option, Alan usually decided to not have a soundtrack. That would change with the next era, and Alan would start to loosen up for both good and bad. I've got just one message for you. You work and work for years and years. You're always on the go. You never take a minute off. Too busy making dough. Someday you say you'll have your fun when you're a millionaire. Imagine all the fun you'll have in your old rocking chair. It's later than you think. Enjoy yourself while you're still in the pink. The years go by as quickly as a wink. Enjoy yourself, enjoy yourself. It's later than you think. The third era of Alan's film music journey is that very modern New York period from 1993's Manhattan Murder Mystery until 2004's Melinda and Melinda encompassing the films he made for Sweetland Films and DreamWorks. Alan at this time was coming out of a difficult period, but was also happily married for most of it and eager to work. 
It was a time when his posters became more colourful, he did some more interviews, and he was actually putting out lots of soundtracks. He was having fun. A lot of the films made in these years, a good nine of them, were set in modern-day New York. And for Alan, the sound of modern-day New York was jazz. That cliché of Alan throwing old jazz recordings under any old film comes from these years. And then there's other films like Bullets Over Broadway or The Curse of the Jade Scorpion were set in the past and used jazz from those eras. There's no classical music at all in this period. Two films really stand out from this era in terms of music. 1996's Everyone Says I Love You and 1999's Sweet and Lowdown. Everyone Says I Love You was a musical full of dance numbers and colour. Alan wanted to make a proper stage musical for a long time and would finally do so with a musical adaptation of Bullets Over Broadway in 2014. But there's lots of singing moments scattered across his films, from Diane Keaton in Annie Hall and Radio Days to Timothy Chalamet in A Rainy Day in New York. There's a huge musical number in the middle of Mighty Aphrodite and then there's Stockard Channing bearing her soul in anything else. Alan doesn't use it often, but he knows the power of using a song in a film from time to time. Here's There'll Be Another Spring, performed by Stockard Channing. <clears throat> okay, this goddamn ballad's driving me crazy. I want you to just tell me what you think. Don't cry There'll be another spring I know our hearts will dance again and sing again. So wait for me till then. Be glad the bird is on the wing. Another chance to Just wait and see. I love Sweet and Lowdown was a music biopic about fictional guitarist Emmett Ray, who lived in the shadow of real guitarist, gypsy legend Django Reinhardt. Unlike the hugely choreographed numbers of Everyone Says I Love You, this film was about working musicians who jam in halls and even around kitchen tables. It was also a big tribute to Django Reinhardt, who appears as a character in the film and another one of Alan's favourites. Django's music appears in his other films like Stardust Memories and Deconstructing Harry. But more than a tribute to Reinhardt, the other interesting musical element of Sweden Lowdown is Alan himself, who plays himself as a talking head expert on jazz. He's surrounded by other actors who also play apparent experts. It plays up Alan's reputation of being an expert in jazz and music, the kind that appears in these kind of documentaries. And the fictional Emmett Ray is just a kind of obscure jazz musician that Alan would know everything about. The actual musician who played all the guitar on Sweden and Lowdown was Howard Alden, and here he is playing Limehouse Blues, a song made famous by Reinhardt. One of the go-tos for Alan around this time was also big band jazz. The big band stuff is actually used the most in Alan's films and usually sounds raucous and full. Take the work of Benny Goodman, in particular his track Sing Sing Sing. Alan's used this one track three times in New York Stories, Manhattan Murder Mystery and Deconstructing Harry. Each time it's a massive rush of excitement. It's a piece of music made for a chase scene.
regulars that span more than one Allen film in this period include Jackie Gleason and his orchestra and Harry James and his orchestra. In fact, there's a lot of orchestras. Tommy Dorsey and his orchestra, Leo Reisman and his orchestra, Duke Ellington and his orchestra, and more. If you don't have an orchestra, who even are you? Errol Garner is another regular in this period. Allen has used Garner in half a dozen films. All of them are set in contemporary New York. It's the same with Gleason, Goodman, and some of these others. The Sweetland films was a period of consistency for Allen. Almost all the films had soundtracks, and if it wasn't very diverse, it was impressive that Allen kept finding more and more deep cuts and album tracks that worked well to set the mood for his films. But that consistency turned to stagnation in the early 2000s when Allen produced a string of comedies for DreamWorks. And across that bunch of films, there were very few inspiring musical moments. In 2000's Small Time Crooks, Allen was using tequila by the champs. 2001's Curse of the Jade Scorpion and 2004's Melinda and Melinda reuse Allen songs from other films. Take Wilbur de Paris, a saxophone player that he has used a couple of times. He's a New Orleans legend and notably Allen used his version of Inner Persian Market in New York Stories and then repeated himself in The Curse of the Jade Scorpion. Here's Inner Persian Market. of his films, Alan had to shake things up again. And luckily, another change was on the horizon. Which takes us to the fourth period of Alan's film music journey, 2005's Matchpoint until today with 2020's Rifkin's Festival. When Alan went to Europe, he decided that for whatever reason, the jazz that he was using was not appropriate. He saw that jazz as American and had to dig deeper to reflect the European cities that were now the settings for his films. Alan's London films embraced opera with Matchpoint and ballet with Scoop, and then with 2007's Cassandra's Dream, he employed composer Philip Glass and after a 36-year break, actually had an original composed score again. When Alan was in Europe, he embraced Spanish flamenco guitar and gypsy jazz, or he chose music associated with Paris for Midnight in Paris, still the only Woody Allen soundtrack to win a Grammy. Midnight in Paris in particular merged what Alan loved about New York and Paris and used music to do it. Cole Porter is back, and this time he's an actual character in the film, as Porter lived in Paris during this period. And then there's Sidney Bechet, Alan's New Orleans hero, from a recording that he made in Paris. It opens the film beautifully. Here's Si tu vois ma mère, or If You See My Mother, by Sidney Bechet. films in America in this period as well, and when he did, he returned to the jazz recordings by great American songwriters of another era. Although the romance of songs by Rodgers and Hart seemed to be on Alan's mind, 
The title of 2013's Blue Jasmine comes from their song Blue Moon, and then there's mentioned several times in Cafe Society of Rogers and Hart being the soundtrack to romance. The main collaborator in these years for Alan is Connell Fouts. He's a regular piano player in Alan's band and provides plenty of incidental music for Alan's most recent films, as well as standing in for Cole Porter in Midnight in Paris and backing Timothy Chalamet in A Rainy Day in New York. The other person who works with Alan a lot during this period is Stéphane Remble. Remble has now worked with Alan for three films. He was just starting out when Alan used some of his music in Vicky Cristina Barcelona in 2008. He then contributed to Midnight in Paris and scored Alan's latest film, Rifkin's Festival. All those films are set in France or Spain, and Rembel's guitar playing really brings out that feeling. Here's Rembel's first work for Alan from Vicky Cristina Barcelona, his big brother. Last few decades, Alan has almost always used a key song in the credits. More often than not, it's a song that has some sort of lyrical tie-in, and sometimes has nothing to do with the rest of the film. It really starts with 1992's Husbands and Wives, where there was very little music, but still a song in the credits. It's a bit of droll irony, because that song is What Is This Thing Called Love, written by Cole Porter. Alan apparently has a book of jazz songs where he could scan the titles for something that would fit. Sometimes it does feel a little bit lazy. Take With A Little Bit Of Money And You from Small Time Crooks, or Hooray For Hollywood for Hollywood Ending, or I Got Lucky In The Rain for A Rainy Day In New York. It works better when Alan uses music just for the sake of sounding good, like he does in 2005's Irrational Man. That film used the Ramsey Lewis trio as both the opening song and a score. It's one of the best music uses in an Alan film in recent years. From that film, he's the wonderful Ramsey Lewis trio with the in crowd. There hasn't been huge amounts of surprises in Alan's film music in recent years, but it's always nice to see what he's dug out and what flavours he's using this time. But it has been over 20 years since Alan has really made a film about music. You'd have to go back to 1999's Sweet and Lowdown. Alan still talks about wanting to make that traditional musical, one with original songs. Some original songs were actually written for Bullets Over Broadway, but Alan went down the road of old songs instead. More intriguing is what will likely be Alan's most notorious, unrealised project, which is American Blues. American Blues is Alan's proposed biopic about Sidney Bechet and Louis Armstrong. He's talked about it several times, but he says that it's too expensive to do the way he wants it to work. It would involve shooting in America and France and licensing a lot of music. Although he always says that he has the story and the way to tell it. I mean, he even has the name of the film and he's costed it out. It suggests that maybe a script even exists somewhere. He was still talking about it just a few years ago. American Blues will likely never see the light of day, but there's been plenty of great music moments in Alan's career so far. From New Orleans jazz, to opera, to Gershwin, to composed score, to Spanish flamenco and much more. There's been almost 500 songs used across his soundtracks, and more than a few of them are some of the best uses of music in cinema. Alan will likely make more great musical moments in his films to come. Music is a huge part of why Alan makes films, and that musical influence can be felt on how Alan makes his films, and what the audience sees and hears. Alan didn't get to be the working musician he wanted to be, 
but he gets to work on music in the films that he makes, and that music will be a part of him as long as he keeps making films and beyond. Thanks for listening to this special episode of the Woody Allen Pages podcast. This was a fun one to put together, trying to work out Allen's career through a different lens. What are your favourite Woody Allen music moments? Let me know at woodyallenpages at gmail.com. And send me any questions too. If you have any ideas for future bonus episodes, let me know. I'm working on the next one right now, and at the moment it's Woody Allen's relationship with the camera. And hey, send me any other questions as well. This episode almost brings us to the end of Season 1. Thanks to all our Patreon supporters. Thanks to Z-Way from Beijing, who loves Annie Hall, of course, and Stardust Memories. And Blake from San Antonio, who loves Manhattan, Hannah and her sisters, and wanted to give a shout-out to Celebrity. Two of those films at least will feature in Season 2. If you've supported me and I've not given you a shout-out yet, check your inbox. I've been asking people to give me a little bit of extra information before I do, and would love to give you your shout-out. If you want to support us on Patreon, you can go to Patreon in the link in the description. And we are running a poll on the website, WoodyAllenPages.com. I want to know how you feel about the films that we've covered so far in Season 1. The poll closes in a few days, so get your answers in. And expect more website stuff to go up as we take a break to work on Season 2. You can also buy our books, the Woody Allen Film Guides, or some of the original podcast artwork. Links for both are in the description. And don't forget to leave a review on your favourite podcast app. Apple, Spotify and many others allow people to leave reviews. And good reviews help the podcast appear in search results. So please, if you have a couple of minutes, leave us a review or a rating. Five stars will do. And find me on social media everywhere with the username Woody Allen Pages. Next week, we end Season 1 with a wrap-up of the questions I've gotten and the results of our poll and a little bit about how Season 2 will work. Thanks for listening.